Good morning, welcome. Uh, we're in Psalm 105 this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn there. We'll pick up right where John left off at verse 23. Uh, I've been telling you all that the Psalms are not randomly thrown together. There's 150 of them, but they're organized uh, into five books. Each book kind of has its own focus. We're get, getting to the end of book four of the Psalms. It's focused mainly on Israel being far from home in exile. Uh, Last week, we looked at Psalm 104. It had this big overview of what it means that God is the creator and what that has to do with our world and with our work. In these last two psalms of the book, uh, we have an overview of the story of Israel. We're zooming in on God's dealings with one people. This week, uh, Psalm 105 is the happy version of Israel's story. Uh, When we get to Psalm 106, we're going to get the very sad version of the story. But we'll worry about that when we get there. Psalm 105. Starting at verse 23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came. Young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in the land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all their firstborn in the land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail. And gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us once again to understand your word so that we might uh, respond with joy and with faith and with obedience. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of what makes life in the modern world so anxious and so difficult for so many people is that it cuts everybody loose to create and to recreate their own meaning for their lives, to create and to recreate their own identity, their own story. It does this in the name of freedom and autonomy. But the Bible teaches that our meaning and our identity and our story are not something that we create for ourselves or that we have to figure out on our own, but that actually they're something that God gives to us as a gift. And so part of what it means 
to become a Christian is that you are entering into a certain story. You're entering into a certain plot. You are receiving a certain role. It's one assigned to you by a loving and a wise God. This psalm that we've just read in two chunks is recounting the story of how God graciously and mightily rescued his people Israel. But it ends, I don't know if you notice this, it ends, it's mostly focused on all these things that God's been doing for Israel over and over and over again. But then it ends with this brief statement about the purpose of it all. The purpose of it is so that we might obey him. And so contrary to what much of the modern world says, God's rules and structure and obedience are not suffocating. They're not oppressive. But actually, they are the shape of living out our proper role as God's people under his rule and in his place. In many ways, the purpose of it all is so that we might obey God's rules. I read to you earlier from John chapter 8 where Jesus says that you are truly one of his disciples if you abide in his word, if you do what he says, if you care about what he says. And then he immediately turns around and says, this is where you find real freedom. A lot of people in the modern world think that obeying God, submitting to his rules is, the, is a form of slavery. It's a form of oppression. But Jesus says, this is real freedom. I will set you free indeed. Obeying God, living for him, living under him is what abundant, satisfying life looks like. It's what God wants to give us, what he wants to bring us into. The psalm is reminding us of what our story is, what the story is. The story of how God provides this abundant life for his people. This psalm is a poem recounting the earlier stages of Israel's story which at first might seem kind of irrelevant to us a few thousand years later. But the New Testament writings of Jesus' apostles repeatedly and at great pains over and over again tell us that for those who trust in Jesus, Israel's story becomes their story. Israel's story becomes our story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul says that the Israelites who left Egypt, those that we just heard about in this psalm, Paul says, those Israelites, he says, quote, they were our forefathers. They were our ancestors. He's mainly talking to Greek and Roman pagans who have no ethnic connection to the Jewish people. And he says, those are our ancestors. Elsewhere, Paul repeatedly says that those who trust in Jesus can claim Abraham as their father. And so one way to understand the story of the Bible One way to understand the story of Israel as a very important subset of that story is this. It's a story about how we've lost our home, but how God has provided a way for us to get back to it. It's a story about how we became homeless as a human people and what God's done to bring us back home to him. Now remember, like I said, that the backdrop of this part of the Psalter is Israel's exile very far away from home in Babylon. The New Testament says that even Christians now living on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection are in a sense still exiles. They're still sojourners. They're still pilgrims. We are not yet fully home. Our true home, the New Testament says, is in heaven, in the new creation of this entire universe. So as the psalm is reminding us about what God has done to bring his people Israel back into their home, way back when they were in Egypt, 
way back when he brought them into this place, this promised land of abundant life, it's also showing us what God is doing for us today to bring us into our true and our ultimate home. It's not merely about Israel as a historical people. God has done this. God is doing this, bringing us back home climactically in Jesus, whom the New Testament shockingly and boldly claims to be the true and the ultimate Israel. Jesus is what Israel was always pointing forward to. The introduction to the psalm in verses 1 to 6 peppers us with 11 different commands, peppering the children of Abraham to rejoice, to praise, to glorify, to call out to God, to remember, verse 5, remember the wondrous works that he's done. Remember his miracles. Remember the judgments that he uttered. And so we remember God's faithfulness in the past, specifically for Israel, but especially and climactically in Jesus. We remember his faithfulness in the past so that we might rejoice in the present as we look forward to him faithfully continuing to keep his promises in the future. As you can see in all these actions in verses 1 to 6, you do this remembering not in some cold, intellectual way, but it's supposed to be something joyful. It's supposed to be something worshipful. It's supposed to be something that draws us out of ourselves and our own concerns and our own worries. Not that they don't matter to God, but that we don't have to be self-absorbed anymore. We can become focused on God. This is the place where real life is found and focusing on Him. And so first, I, have, I usually have two or three points. That's what they tell you in seminary. Make sure you have two or three points in your sermons. Today I have seven, which may be a sign of poor thinking this week, but you are now my victims and you have to deal with it. First point out of seven, the text calls us to remember God's faithfulness to his people in his promise, his promise, verses seven to 11. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord, our God. Uh, This is like I've said a couple times recently, Yahweh is God's personal covenant name. Uh, He is not a distant, abstract deity, but he's the God who makes promises to create and sustain relationship with a people. That's what we mean. That's what the Bible means when we talk about covenant. God can be, God is our God. Not just a God, not just the God. He's our God. He's my God. Even as he is also God over the entire world. This verse also says that his judgments are in all the earth. You hear that he remembers his covenant forever, for a thousand generations. He doesn't forget. He doesn't backtrack on what he's promised. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't change his mind. You hear in verse 9 that he's made a covenant promise to an idolater named Abraham about 4,000 years ago. To us, especially in the modern world where we measure our lives by when our next iPhone's coming out, 4,000 years sounds like an unbelievably long time ago. Impossible that something that happened 4,000 years ago could have anything to do with us today. But remember what Psalm 90 told us a couple weeks ago. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past. 4,000 years is really nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. God's character, God's nature never change. And so he's perfectly reliable in keeping his promises. 
even if to us it sure feels like he's taken his sweet time to do so. God made, God is keeping his ancient promises to Abraham and to his descendants. And so the psalm is focusing on one element of that promise, the promise to provide a home for his people. The New Testament says that Jesus is the ultimate descendant, the ultimate seed of Abraham. He's the real focus of these promises. So that anybody, the New Testament says, anybody who's united to Jesus by trusting in him, anybody there can be claiming these promises that were made to Abraham. And so what it means is that we too, if we trust in Jesus, we too have been promised a home. We have a homeland. Not just a small strip of real estate along the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, but actually the entire recreated universe. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament says that according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We also remember, this is my second point, God's faithfulness to his people, not just in his promise, but also in his protection. Verses 12 to 15, we're walking through Israel's story. So now we hear about Abraham in the next couple generations wandering around the promised land of Canaan, even though they didn't yet possess it. The psalm says they were few in number, they were of little account, they were sojourners in it. And so they sometimes had to wander far from home, even among those who would have crushed them if it weren't for God's watchful protection. God allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. Touch not my anointed ones. Sometimes we too today, more than other times, we are acutely aware of how homeless we are in this world, how out of step, how behind the times how laughably weak and unimportant we might be. But just like with Abraham, so also for us. God is with us. God's protecting us just like he's always done through the history of his people. We can trust him to watch out for us. We can trust him to keep us truly safe under his loving care. He did it for Abraham. He did it for Isaac. He did it for Jacob. He did it most of all for his beloved son, Jesus through the many dangers and threats of his life and his ministry, his own wanderings, his own homelessness. Isn't he going to do it for you too? He has not forgotten about you. He knows how disorienting, how tenuous life in this fading world can be. He's with you. At verse 16, we now shift to the story of Joseph. This is Abraham's great-grandson, And so here, thirdly, the text is calling us to remember God's faithfulness to his people in his ruling over evil, his ruling over evil. Being protected by God, which is what we just heard about, we now see, does not mean that you get to ice skate through life. In verse 16, you hear that God himself summoned a famine on the land of Canaan, on the land of Egypt, but that he also had a man for the job. He sent a man to deal with it. But even this man, Joseph, God's man, God's chosen missionary, so to speak, even he did not have an easy time of it. His life was pretty miserable in a lot of ways. His brothers hated him. His brothers plotted to kill him, but then settled for trafficking him instead as a slave. As a slave, he was unjustly condemned for a crime he didn't commit, 
And he was thrown into a dungeon where he rotted away for many years. And so in many ways, you could look at Joseph's life and you could think God has totally abandoned him. God must not care about him. God is not protecting him. Many people looked at lowly Jesus, especially on the cross, and they mocked him for this absurd humiliation. How could God be on the side of someone dying like that? Somebody with even his closest friends abandoning him. But God had promised to bless and exalt Joseph and then Jesus as the true and the better Joseph, just like he's promised to do for you. You hear in verse 19 that the word of the Lord tested Joseph. I've been thinking about this verse all week long. This painful tension between God's promise and our suffering. I heard one author describe this one time as the painful, deathly tension between what's real, your pain, your suffering, and what's true, God's word. This tension between God's promise and our suffering refines us, it shapes us, it proves us. But like Joseph and like Jesus, we have to continue relying on God's promised word of blessing even in the midst of evil. We know that God is ruling over the evil circumstances and the evil people in our lives. And so we have God's faithfulness in His promise, God's faithfulness in His protection, God's faithfulness in His rule over evil. But now at verse 24, you hear about His faithfulness in His judgment on evil. His judgment on evil. You're zooming forward now from Joseph's life through over 400 years of Israel's miserable enslavement in Egypt. Uh, The psalm says, God made the people exceedingly fruitful. There were babies everywhere. But at the same time, he sovereignly moved the Egyptians and their leaders to hate and to oppress Israel. But that didn't mean that God forgot about his promise. It didn't mean that God had somehow gone back and erased things, changed things around. Just like he'd sent Joseph, now we hear that he has sent Moses. He sends Moses to punish Egypt and to rescue his beloved people. And so the psalm now takes ten lines to detail most of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt. God was hammering them with growing severity in order to humble them but especially to humble their tyrannical king and to make a mockery of their oppressive demonic gods. And so God strikes at every aspect of the Egyptians' lives and strength. He goes after their water, their light, their homes, their food, their work, their capital, even most horrifically, their own families. God kills the firstborn son of any household that defiantly refuses to paint the blood of a Passover lamb on their front door. Anybody could have done it. We read that lots of Egyptians went out with Israel when they left. People had to decide what they were going to do, if they were going to believe what God said or try to do it on their own. God hates sin, evil, and oppression. And so his right and his good response is to punish and destroy it. Over and over in the Bible, God graciously saves an undeserving people through judgment. Without wrath, mercy is meaningless. Indeed, you can see that most of all in the death of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus, who is the true and the eternal firstborn son, he's bearing the ultimate plague upon sin and evil 
even though he's the only person who's ever lived who didn't deserve any of it? All so that we wouldn't have to. You can see God's faithfulness to his people in his pouring out mercy through his judgment on evil. His judgment on evil. This is what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. We have these words in the church that we throw around so much that they become so familiar we almost forget what they mean. But this is the paradigm in the Bible of salvation. God rescuing Israel out of Egypt. In verse 37, you can hear about God's faithfulness in saving his people from Egypt. After the final Egyptian plague, God quickly brings out his people from the land of death and misery. And then he gives them even the riches of Egypt who cannot get rid of them fast enough. And so this is what the Bible calls the Exodus. Uh, For us as Christians today, when we look back at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we say, wow, look at this great thing that God did in the past. This defines who we are as a people. God was doing something so wonderful. Uh, That's much better. That's much greater. That's much clearer uh, for us than it was for anybody who lived before that. But in a lot of ways, what the death and the resurrection of Jesus are for us today as Christians is what the exodus from Egypt was for Israel before Jesus came. Jesus' death and resurrection, the New Testament makes this very clear. The death and resurrection of Jesus are a second exodus. They're the real exodus. They're what the exodus was always pointing to. Indeed, Jesus gives us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper right on the heels of a Passover meal with his disciples. He's uh, not so subtly saying that by his death on the cross, he was going to become God's real Passover lamb. He's going to be the key to our escape from the Egypt of sin and death. And so how grateful and how joyful we should be, even more than Israel. We hear here that God brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. I mean, imagine if you were one of these Israelite slaves and now you're loaded up with the gold of these people who hated you and you get to leave. Scot-free, all you have to do is walk. Imagine how you would feel after 400 years of misery. But God doesn't just save his people and then say, well, now you're on your own. Figure it out. At verse 39, we hear of his faithfulness in sustaining his people. His faithfulness in sustaining his people. Point five was saving his people. Point six is sustaining his people. You're all keeping track, all my points. So with Israel now wandering through the wilderness, God guides the people with this fiery pillar of cloud at nighttime you can see the fire in the daytime you can mostly see the cloud 24 hours a day god is showing israel where to go he's showing them where to rest when it's time to stop when it's time to pick up again god's always with us god's always going with us he's always going before us he never abandons us no matter how desolate the wilderness some of you are in very lonely dry desolate places right now god's with you he's guiding you But he does more than that. In verses 40 to 41, the psalm tells us that he gave Israel food. Birds, quail, but also this miraculous heavenly bread. Uh, But we hear here that he doesn't just give them a little bit. Here's enough just to scrape by. Got to keep you really humble. No, it says that he gave them lots of food in abundance. He's a generous God. And then you're reminded that he brings this gushing river of water out of a rock, even though they're right in the middle of a desert. And so once again, it's a reminder that God sustains his people abundantly and generously in the dry and the low places of the world. God never leaves us to fend for ourselves. Why? 
Look at verse 42. Why doesn't God abandon us? Why does he take such good care of us? He remembered his holy promise. He remembered Abraham, his servant. So you can see it's taking us all the way back to the beginning. God made a promise to this man Abraham way, way, way back when. And he did not forget about it. He could not forget about it. That promise is just as true for you today. For Jesus is not only the ultimate seed of Abraham, but he is himself also the true and the better food from heaven. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. God sustains us with the very life of his son Jesus when we trust in him through all of our wanderings in all the wildernesses of this world. The Psalms helping us to remember God's faithfulness to his people and his promise and his protection and his rule over and his judgment on evil in his saving people in his sustaining people and now finally in his settling his people. His settling people. Verse 44, And he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. So this is where the psalm focused when it, remember, described God's original promise to Abraham. There were a couple pieces of this promise to Abraham, but the psalm is most interested in this promise that God's going to give Abraham and his children a homeland, even though, for now, they were sojourners and strangers. And so, as we already said, this is ultimately not about the promised land of Israel itself, but it's ultimately about the entire planet. It's even more than that. It's about the entire universe. It's about Jesus sending out his church to preach the gospel in the entire world as we wait for him to come back and then destroy it and then recreate it all into a place of perfect wholeness and harmony. God's going to settle us into our true and our eternal home. The letter to the Hebrews says that Christians are those who acknowledge that they're strangers and exiles on the earth. It says they are those who desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This twisted world is not really our home, though we're constantly tempted to think so. We're looking forward to the renewal and the restoration of this world so that it might truly be our home with God and in God and for God. And so the story of Israel, the story of God's faithfulness to her, it's a microcosm of the much larger cosmic story of the entire human race about how in Jesus God has faithfully kept his promises to his people all over the world. We now have another 2,000 years of history since Jesus came where we can see God always taking care of his people, all these wonderful examples, all these crazy stories about what God's been doing. You know, we have this little tiny piece for us as a church today here in Austin, next tiny little chapter of this story of God's faithfulness to his people and to you. And so let's keep remembering what God's done, especially through Jesus, so that we can rejoice in him now, so that we can honor him now, as we keep looking forward to our final homecoming. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you that you are just as faithful to us as you were and are to Abraham, that you're just as faithful to us as you were and you are to Jesus. It feels like a long time to us since you've made these promises. It feels like we've been waiting a long time for Jesus to return. But we know that in the grand scheme of eternity, it's nothing. We can be just as confident, just as joyful as Israel was when they left Egypt. Help us to trust you. Help us to remember that you're faithful, that you're with us, you're providing for us, you're watching over us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.